Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Well, good morning, Covenant. I see you all did not freeze to death. It is good to see you this morning. If you're a guest with us, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors, and I am excited to start a brand new series with you today, moving verse by verse through this letter that we call 1 John. It's toward the end of what the Bible calls your New Testament. If you're unfamiliar with scriptures, divide it up, old to the left, new to the right. Uh, and so you want to go to the end, you'll find Revelation, start moving back toward the front from there, and eventually, sooner rather than later, you will come to 1 John chapter 1. While you're turning, let me uh, just share a couple of announcements. There's a lot of things going on as we start 2024 together. I don't know about you, but I, I feel like 2024, and I think this is an appropriate metaphor, started by spinning in a snowdrift. Like, I haven't gotten started yet. Like, are we ever going to get to work? Are we ever going to get things done? Well, there's a lot of things on docket here at Covenant. Uh, the first I want to share with you is a conversation that I'm going to be having with anyone interested on the 28th, that's a week from today after the 11 o'clock service, and on the 31st, that's a Wednesday night, we're having a conversation about baptism and membership, what it means to be a member of the church. Now, here's a little bit of the background of that. We are reviewing and revising our governing documents here at Covenant. That is sometimes a necessary thing. Churches are not static. Uh, they're not merely corporations. They are living organisms, and those structures and, and, and systems sometimes have to shift a little bit, just sort of like your kid that went from a size 9 to a size 11 in three months. Sometimes that happens here as well. But one of the things that we're looking at is the relationship of baptism and church membership. So the things we're going to be discussing are what do we do believe about baptism? And that's not changing, by the way, for those of you who might be concerned about that. It's not. Uh, but how have we practiced that belief in the church? H how do we see other people who maybe don't see this issue the way we do, but they're obviously followers of Jesus? Uh, they're going to be in heaven with us one day. Uh, what, what is their relationship to us? And then uh, how, do we, how do we do all of that together as a church family? Uh, it's going to be a great opportunity just to, for me to kind of frame that issue for you, give you an opportunity to ask questions, anything you want. Uh, and this is by request both of the Bylaw Review Committee that sounds like such an exciting group to be a part of, doesn't it? The Bylaw Review Committee and our elders who said, you know what, let's open this, this particular conversation up uh, to God's people. So 28th and 31st, check it out on the calendar. And speaking of calendars, every once in a while I hear somebody say, I don't ever know what's going on around here. Well, sometimes I don't either, Okay. Um, there are a lot of things. Sometimes people come to me and they ask me really detailed questions about ministries that I didn't even know were going on. Uh, that's a good problem, by the way. That, that is far better than a, a lead pastor that can stay on top of everything, but there's not much happening. So this is the church guide. You can find it at the new here table out there, and it'll tell you week to week everything that's going on, all the ministries that you can be involved in. And if you're new uh, today, especially two things, fill out this blue card for me, drop it in the offering plate. It's my birthday today, by the way. This is, sure, I'll take it. So this is, uh, yeah, this is what I want for my birthday right here. I want these cards in the offering plate. And, um, and, and then you can grab one of these. It'll tell you a little bit more. Now, Joan Garvin, one of our own, has done this amazing thing 
that is so simple you would have thought anybody could have done this, um, but apparently I'm not smarter than a trained monkey, so I couldn't do this. Uh, and she has put together this lovely thing, and every single week you will find a copy of it at the coffee table, just in case you don't want to come to the New Here table, but you love coffee, uh, and also at the New Here table this week at Covenant. Everything you need to know right here that's going on. We really are working on it, folks. Uh, communication's a hard thing no matter which church you go to. Um, but on top of that, stay on top of your groups. If you're part of a group, y'all do the inner, inner communication when there's snow on the ground and those kind of things. But in terms of the bigger picture, uh, this is what we're doing. I want to thank our staff and especially Joan for this uh, new little piece that I think is going to be handy for all of us. So that'll give you and keep you in the know I'm talking about a heresy today called Gnosticism, which taught, among other things, that there's only these elite few that know everything and everybody else knows nothing. And we don't want that kind of thing here, okay? And so you, everything you need to know should be right there uh, as we start a new year together. I don't know about you, but it feels to me like we're living in uncertain times, troublesome times, times where you don't really know what's next. Uh, I was shocked that uh, the, the new reading list that we've got out in the foyer the thickest book that if I, you know, I try to put myself in the mind of the average parishioner and I'm thinking, boy, I'd be really interested in that one on toxic masculinity because I'm a man and I, I'd be really interested in that one on, on race because it's written by an African-American who isn't evangelical and who's kind of combating with it. Uh, the, the history book out there, The Fourth Turning, I'm like, man, that's something people really need to read, but I don't think they're gonna because it's big and it's thick and it's complicated and it was the first one to sell out. And it shocked me, but it, but it gave me the indication that maybe there's some other people thinking, you know, it would be kind of nice if we could have some sort of predictive pattern to sort of know what's coming and, and, all, and all this like this, because the world's just messed up right now. And I'm not just talking about our own culture and our own country. I'm talking about just about any continent you go to right now. The world is, is very, very shaky. Now, the good news is uh, we're not the first people to go through something like this. This is not something that's unprecedented, maybe in our lifetimes, but certainly not in world history. Every generation of followers of Jesus that were faced with hard times like this since the closing of the canon of Scripture has had a timeless word to go back to and to lean on. And, and given the particular times in which we live right now and the way that we've seen our enemy at work um, outside and within the body of Christ, I, I don't think there's a more timely place to go uh, and this was confirmed to me through many of you that I talked with and prayed with. And so many of you are like, you know, I'm reading First John these days. And it's just speaking to me. I'm talking about last June where I thought, okay, eventually we have to get around to this book. Because what First John is going to do for us is it's going to give us the right set of lenses through which to view this world that we find ourselves in the middle of right now. When I was in the sixth grade, uh, I got my very first set of contact lenses. Uh, I've had bad eyesight really since about the age of four or five, but I also like to play ball. And my mom and dad decided I had broken my final pair of glasses. They weren't going to pay for another pair. Uh, and the technology, believe it or not, even in the early 1980s, had progressed to the point that this sixth grade boy could get his first set of contact lenses. Now, as I stand before you, I got one in each eye, and they're both exactly the same prescription. You should thank God for that if you wear contact lenses. Because when I first came into them, one eye was a little bit stronger than the other. And so I had a different prescription in each eye. And I know this is hard for you to imagine for a sixth grade boy, but one day I got up and I put, one in, I put them in opposite eyes. 
I put them in the wrong eyes. And I didn't realize what was going on. I got to about third period, and I was having this. I mean, I wasn't the best student anyway, people, and I was already giving my teachers a hard time. Wasn't able to pay attention. At first they thought, well, that's just Joel being Joel. But then there's this massive headache, and they're like, well, something's going on with him. And so they sent me to the nurse's office, which had a floor-to-ceiling glass door. Yeah, you know where this is going, right? Now, I saw it. I, I saw the door. But the wrong prescription in both eyes gave me a really, really bad sense of what we might call depth perception. And I plowed right into that sucker. It was not one of my more graceful moments. Now, what, what happened in that moment, I, both of my eyes were doing their best to do their job using the wrong lenses. That happens spiritually, too. There are times we see things wrongly. There are times we're tempted to put God's name on something. It has no business being on. How do we know the difference? Well, we have to look at everything through the right lenses. And our faith teaches us that if we do that, we'll see there's, there's one path to thinking, one path to behaving, one way of relating to other people in a way that honors God. And the New Testament actually calls this the mind of Christ, Paul told us in, in Romans we're supposed to renew our minds, that there's this inseparable connection in Scripture between what I think about the Lord Jesus and how I relate to his body that helps me connect the two. Let me tell you why I think we need this right now, because the, the world as a general, in general is more polarized and probably more ugly than it's ever been in any of our lifetimes. I might be wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but I'm probably not. It is going to get worse. It, it probably will. And it will seek to infiltrate the church just like it did, I don't know, last election cycle maybe, right? It's coming. It's coming. I think I told you all about a year ago, you need to get ready for this, right? Because this is coming. It's not because of this group or that group or that ideology or that party. It's just humans being humans. It, it's history, like the book suggests out there by Neil High. It's the way we behave because as Solomon reminded us, there's nothing new under the sun. Human beings have always behaved this way outside of Christ, and they're going to pull those inside of Christ to seek to act that way, and they will find all manner of things to divide over. Division happens generationally. I heard a a Gen Z, or listen, I got, I got two of them still living in my house. I love Gen Z. I love our youth group. I think they're the hope of our church and our community. They're all that kind of stuff. But, but I heard this, this young lady the other day talking about nobody has ever had it as hard as us. And you all, and she was talking about my generation. And I'm like, I know you ain't talking to me. Like, I just know you're not. You, did, you had it easy. And I'm like, that's funny right there. Listen, and you call us lazy. I'm like, Really? That happened to you too, huh? Yeah, it happened to me. That's what the baby boomers said about me. Yeah, every, like, generational division. Always, nobody's understanding each other. Everybody's assuming the worst out of each other. Happens racially, ethnically. A generation ago, we lived in a segregated world, living separated lives. And every time we try to pull up the roots of that, as Chris Seipel talked about that a little bit last week, it's, it's like the division just resurfaces every time because we fail to acknowledge our ignorance of each other's experience and listen to each other. It happens pharisaically in the church when we refuse to show deference to somebody when there's a difference of opinion over a debatable thing. It happens culturally. It happens politically. Now, here's what we're going to learn over the next three months from 1 John. Wherever any of this exists in the church, 
there's something wrong with the lenses we're using to view Jesus and to view each other. And the ongoing challenge of unity in the body is something that goes all the way back to the first century. So let's talk a little bit uh, about 1 John. It's It's a letter that he's written to a group of churches, but it's a very atypical letter. We don't, for example, know for sure exactly who the author was, although I'm going to make a big assumption, just full disclosure here in just a moment. We don't know for sure who the first recipients were. There's a lot of scholarly debate around this. And so here here are the two assumptions that I'm going to operate on for roughly the next 12 weeks. Number one, I'm assuming that the John who writes this letter is the same John that wrote 2 John, 3 John, the Gospel of John, and Revelation. I could be wrong, but I'm probably not. Now, if you want all the scholarship behind all that, if you're just as nerdy as me, send me an email. I'll give you every resource that I use putting this together, every resource that you might want around 1 John. But just just know that's an assumption that Pastor Joel is standing on as he looks at this letter. The second assumption, because this letter reads a whole lot like a sermon, is it's aimed pastorally to numerous Gentile congregations. More specifically, Greek. And and I'm assuming that because of the way that John interacts with and leverages Greek thought to to get his point across. And so then comes this this question, what what were his readers struggling with? Well, as we're going to see in a few moments, it's the same thing we struggle with today, but it had a particular expression and a particular name in the ancient world, and that name was Gnosticism. This was an ancient heresy, first century. They really wouldn't identify it by that label until about a century later, Uh, but when when you reverse engineer the term and you go back, you go, yep, that's exactly what they were dealing with in John's time. Now, Gnosticism is a highly complex system of thought. It was a mixture of Greek thought and paganism and, and everything that collided with Christian thought in a lot of different ways. But the two primary ways were as follows. Number one, the Gnostics taught that there were the initiated and then there was everybody else. In other words, there's this class of people that have knowledge that nobody else has. And these are the people that can dispense the knowledge downstream, right? And so you've got knowledge of God, knowledge of life, knowledge of wholeness is only available to this elite few people who are kind of in the know and they're initiated. They know what's really going on, right? And then then there's everybody else. So that was the first tenet of Gnosticism. Knowledge is available only to the elite few. The second major tenet of this heresy is this radical division between soul and body. So when we talk about the makeup of my constitution, what, what is it that makes me human? They would say, well, there's, there are several things that make you human, one of which is your body. But your body and your soul or your body and your mind, the spiritual and the material, are really separated from each other. And sometimes that would work out like this. It would work out in what's called asceticism. Well, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to deny myself every kind of physical pleasure, make sure I never have sex with my spouse, make sure I take cold showers, make sure my coffee's out of a styrofoam cup, you know, stuff that just makes you miserable, living like that in order to purge all the evil out. But the most common way this was expressed would be, well, just do whatever you want to with your body because it's inherently evil anyway. All right, so those are the two things. Gnosticism, elite knowledge, only for the few, and body and soul, radically separated. Body is the thing that's inherently evil. You think there are maybe some manifestations of that today? Let's talk. They just caught me on television, trying to take a drink with the cap still on. (laughs) Happy New Year. All right, let's talk about just a few examples here. 
Let's start with Mormonism. Now, some of you got Latter-day Saint neighbors, and you'll testify just like I would. They're some of the best neighbors you could have. They're good people. Some of them are leaders in our community. I don't want you going out of here thinking it's okay to hate somebody because of what they believe. All right, I'm not talking about the people. But when we speak about Mormonism, we're speaking about an ideology that began in history with a man whose name was Joseph Smith, who was wondering why all these denominations, why are there Baptists and Presbyterians and Pentecostals and Episcopalians and Catholics? And like, why is the church divided up? And supposedly, he got a visit from an angel who delivered golden tablets to him, explaining to him, among other things, that all of those denominations and all of that history and all of those Christian leaders that existed between Jesus and your grandmother were wrong and they were evil in God's sight, but I'm giving you knowledge to start something new and pure. That's the historical foundations of Mormonism. It's Gnosticism. It's an idea that I'm the initiated. I'm a, no, no manuscript evidence for any of this, mind you, none. But that's what it's based on. And so there's Mormonism. Now, within the charismatic movement, there's another uh, element of this. And again, I don't want to be mean to Pentecostals, charismatics. In fact, I want to be very clear so much of the explosive work of the Holy Spirit in Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa at this moment would not happen if it were not for our Pentecostal charismatic brothers and sisters. But there is an extreme form of hyper-charismatic thought that comes through and interprets texts like 1 Corinthians 12 in a way that comes out rather presumptuous. You ever had somebody walk up to you and go, I got a word for you? No, you don't. No, you don't. Now, is it possible that we might sit in a group together and I might say, hey, I, you know, I've been listening to your story. I've been I just, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm hearing God say something and we test that together with the scriptures and in community and in everything. Well, of course, that's how the Holy Spirit works in community. He doesn't work through hierarchy. He doesn't work through one Christian presuming to have a more direct line to the Holy Spirit than someone else has and commanding that other person. God told me to tell you comes out of the mouth of a Gnostic, whether they realize it or not. The transgender movement, another example. If, if some of you are struggling with gender dysphoria in this church, I've probably heard your story. I haven't told you anybody else's story for confidentiality, but I will tell you, you are loved, you are welcomed, and you are not alone in your struggle. But there's a reason that we try to stand shoulder to shoulder with you to fight that. It's because the ideology itself is a dangerous form of Gnosticism. Think about this for a moment, because what it says is if there's incongruence between what's in my mind and that expression through my physical body, the answer is not to treat the mind, but to alter the body. Now, underneath that, whether they realize it or not, a lot of folks just sort of wholesale because they want to be loving and kind, and that's understandable, and, and they, they, they want to just accept people as they are. And so this, this sounds like a good thing to do, just accept whatever anybody wants to, to do with themselves. But underneath it, even unconsciously, what they're accepting is an ideology that says if there's incongruence between the spiritual and the material, the material is the inherently evil thing. The body God gave you, which he says is good and right and and righteous in and of itself it is in fact an evil thing it's less than your body is less than that's transgender ideology that that's Gnosticism QAnon is a Gnostic cult that says there's an initiated and then there's the sheeple I could go on and on but like this is the stuff that was now why am I talking about like what in the world does QAnon have to do with Mormonism 
what does transgenderism have to do with charismatics? Like Joel, what did it? Every single one of them are examples to you as you sit there of the fact that in 2024, regardless of your ideology, regardless of what you believe politically, theologically, culturally, your background, your family, you sit in very close proximity to one of thousands of modern manifestations of an ancient heresy that our ancestors once called Gnosticism. And that ideology is going to do a couple of things. It's going to seek to draw you in. It's going to seek to capture your mind. And then it's going to seek to divide you off from the rest of the body. That's what John's addressing here. And he's addressing it in this way. When you have a people in a church that subscribe to things like this, you've got haves and haves nots. Corrupted faith is the first thing that happens. Now, for the ancients, they thought Jesus, they, this is the way that came out in something called doceticism, if, if flesh is evil, then Jesus could not have been human. And so the, the heresy that resulted was Jesus only appeared to be human. This is what John is confronting. Because if you believe flesh is evil, what does that do with the incarnation? You will have to disembody the Lord Jesus. You will have to take away his humanity. So in some form or fashion, if you fall for this, your faith is going to get corrupted, and then that corrupted faith is going to trickle down and corrupt your community with each other. Because if your unity is based in Jesus, and you have a perverted understanding of Jesus, your relationships with others will be corrupted. John repeats this. You see this detected in his challenges to love one another, the repeated cor correction he'll make of, of our and, and connection of our horizontal relationships with each other and our vertical relationship with God. In fact, he just comes out and says it very bluntly in chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. If there's corruption in community, you have a corrupt faith. So in an effort to set all of this right, John writes this first epistle. And what we're going to look at today is just the prologue, the first four verses. That's all we got time for. And he's going to set the foundation for the whole thing. Strong Christian faith, lasting Christian fellowship, finds its anchor in Jesus. Not the Gnostic Jesus who's been mutilated and split apart between body and soul, but the real, live, 100% God, 100% human Jesus of Nazareth. This is where we find our rallying point as followers of Jesus. And here's the good news, guys. In the middle of all the confusion, you don't need to be privy to a higher truth. You don't need to get some radicalized, crazy view of the word of knowledge. You don't need to be one of the initiated. The real Jesus has already been revealed. And not just to the initiated, but to everybody. Everybody. So I want you to see here a threefold basis as we start this series together. Every one another command that we're going to find in this letter and everywhere else in the New Testament rests on three foundations that John lays out for us. Foundation number one, the biggest breach has already been bridged. The biggest, somebody, you think about that conflict that you had over Christmas with extended family, conflict in your marriage, conflict with your children, conflict at work, and you think, is there ever going to be an end to this? Think of this, the greatest division that could have ever occurred in history. It's already been closed. The gap has already been closed. Reconciliation has happened. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands 
Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. Now, we, this sounds lofty and almost a little bit ivory towerish. We don't truly comprehend how powerful this is until we remember a, a point, a prior era, if you will, in, in biblical history, a time before Jesus. Probably the most clear of that would be in Exodus 33. Moses asked the Lord, show me your glory. You remember that story? And here's what God said. You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and, yeah, live. You, yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to do it, but you won't survive it. You can't handle it. Why is that? Because there was a separation between us and our creator that goes all the way back to our first parents. And the penalty for that rebellion was that this separation was two things. It was infinite and it was eternal. Infinite, meaning that separation will never decrease but will be forever increasing in severity and eternal. It will never end. That's why we believe in hell here. Well, that sounds kind of harsh. It does sound kind of harsh. Until you consider the one who's been offended. Why is the punishment infinite and eternal? Because the being sinned against is both infinite and eternal. We understand this even in our own system of law. There's a bigger penalty depending on the dignity of one who's offended. It doesn't mean that we're all not equal as, human, as humans, but, but, but if you were to murder me, I, I mean, I would hope there would be penalties for that. Pretty stiff ones. You took a human life. But if you assassinate a United States senator, it's worse, isn't it? Is it because that senator is more human than me? No, no, we're both equal in that regard. But when you assassinate a senator, you're not just taking a life. You're also assaulting God-ordained authority. That's a higher level of accountability. That's a higher level, of, right? You, you, we don't think like this. Sometimes our, our whole thing, right or left, we start talking about equality. We think equality always has to be egalitarian, always has to result in equity, always has a it, nonsense. No, 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 no. There, there's a level of that. And again, it's not because he or she holding that office is better than me, but it's because the office they hold represents something that's powerful and, and integral to human flourishing and existence. So if you, if you take their life, it's different. The only appropriate punishment for offending an infinite being is an infinite punishment. That's why we believe in hell. But then comes the good news. John says, the one who was from before all time and space. We heard from him. We saw him. We touched him. He, he came to us within the reach of our five senses. I mean, this was no mere accident or happenstance. He was made manifest. He intentionally disclosed himself to us. And he is called the word of life. John 1, 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then 13 verses later, he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, then comes this part, we have beheld the glory of the only begotten Son from the Father. So in reverse order, this is what John's telling us here in these, these first couple of verses. We have a message to proclaim to you. It's good news. The word, by the way, is angelion. We get angel from it. We get 
evangel from it, which is where the word evangelical comes from. We announce it to you with certainty and confidence. We know that it's true, and all of us can know that it was true. Why is that? Because this 80-something-year-old apostle said, I was there when it happened. We're reading the words of an eyewitness. We know it's true because we were there. You know, often when there's division in a relationship or marriage, extended family, church family, it, it, it becomes a question of who's going to make the first move. And I've had situations like that. I won't out who they were, but members of my extended family who just refused to make the first move, and I mean literally two decades would go by and one of them would be at the funeral of another and there's no reconciliation. It's sad. It's heartbreaking. Because they're like, who? well, I, I'm not going to do it until they. You ever heard that kind of thing? That's invaded our body politic now. That's why, every, that's why this whole election is about nothing but hatred and grievance. Every bit of it. What they did to me. You get underneath the surface, and that's, that's what you hear all the time. It's not about policy. It's not about ideas. It's not about honesty and just debating. It's just about what they are going to do, what they have done, what they are doing. Whatever, whatever side you're on, a national-level family grievance and nobody willing to make the first move. I, I don't know what's going to happen with all that, but I can tell you this. I want you to consider this as we open up this letter together. When it came to the division between me and God, not only was I unwilling to make the first move, Scripture tells me even if I had been willing, there's nothing I could have done. I was helpless, and so were you. And the Word became flesh. He came to me when I couldn't come to Him. That's what I want you to consider here. The largest, most entrenched, from a human perspective, least possible breach to repair. God did it. That's why you're sitting there right now. You and I are called to be a people of reconciliation because we serve a God who reconciled us out of a sinful life that, that from a human standpoint, could not have been reconciled. This is the starting point for everything else. The biggest breach has already been bridged. So that issue with that extended family member, that issue with that kid, that issue with, you know, I don't know if it's possible. It is possible. Will it happen? I don't know. But don't be telling yourself it's impossible. Look at the cross and let the lie of that be put to you. That's foundation number one. Biggest breach has already been bridged. Foundation number two, the greatest unity has already been modeled. Look at verse three. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, we got to unpack this word fellowship if we're going to understand the power behind this. Because many decades ago, churches would build, most of them, things called fellowship halls. How many of you have ever been in a fellowship hall? All right. That's otherwise known as a VFW hall, but the church had to Christianize it, baptize it, so they had to call it something else. Right? It's just a moose lodge with a cross on it. That's what it is. Okay, and that's okay. That's all right. Nothing wrong with the fellowship hall. But but what happened is over time we we start to see this word koinonia as it occurs in in the the New Testament, and, and we we but we read fellowship and we immediately think about. So now what happens is when we think about fellowship, we automatically just think about bad coffee in a styrofoam cup. And by the way, styrofoam cups are the devil. 
I haven't found it in the Bible yet, but I know it's in there somewhere. I am like, you. if I go into a restaurant in the morning and I ask for coffee and they have the gall to serve that stuff to me in a styrofoam, you're like, you, you are a coffee snob. Guilty. Absolutely. I want my coffee in a real cup. Amen? Amen. That's right. All right. When you're not around a lot, that might be the one caveat to this sermon today, right? If you can drink coffee out of a styrofoam cup, there's something wrong with you. But, but that's what we think about, right? We just, oh, yeah, that's right. We go to the church. Everybody brings a dish. Again, nothing wrong with that. But the word has been imprisoned. Let me show you another way that this word is used. Look at uh, Romans 15, 26. It's going to pop up here for you. Paul says, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution to the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. You see how the word contribution there, I've, I've highlighted it for you? Same word. Fellowship, contribution. Literally, make some fellowship. That's what he's saying. But in the context of Romans, it refers to write as big a check as you can, right? And so when you give, when you participate, even here, we take an offering in just a few moments, that's not just merely an act of worship to God. It's actually an act of fellowship. But, but it's about a lot more than just money. All right, it's not less than what Paul's talking about in Romans 15, but it's a lot more than what he's talking about because of what John tells us here. Fellowship is a description of a vested relationship with other people. It literally means to be secured in the possession of or assigned to a person. All right, I don't just have a, a casual acquaintance with you. If we're in the same church family together, we have a vested, we have fellowship, vested relationships. And first thing I think about my, at my age when I hear that word vested is this account that I have that's been building up monetary value over the last several decades called a 403B. Some of you may not know what that is because I'm a nonprofit guy, but if you're in the, in the for-profit world, you might have a similar account called a 401. Yeah, who's got one of those? All right. How many of you have been checking that thing recently? All right. How many of you, you you're getting? How many of you you're within, say, a decade of having to draw out of that thing, and you really are concerned about it? So let's talk about a 401k. Let's talk about that retirement account. I mean, it started. I, I opened that account in 1998. 98. I was 26 years old. We started putting a little bit in it, and then there was about a four-year period where we just we were dirt poor because we were planting a church, couldn't put anything in it, uh, and then we started. And so it's accumulated over the years. And now it's at a level where I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm gauging that against the, the, you know, any potential dates of where maybe I don't need necessarily an income anymore. And so what is that? You're, you're planning that out, aren't you? I'm fully vested in that money, by the way. It means all of it's mine. Isn't that cool? It's mine. But, but I don't, if I bought a bass boat with it tomorrow, Mrs. Rainey would be very upset with me. And there's a reason for that, because that money has a purpose, doesn't it? If you, and if you're within 10, 15 years of retirement the way I am, then you probably view that account the way I do. I've got a little spending money account as well, and every time, every time I get paid, we, we, throw, we throw a few hundred bucks in there, and I use that to run on or to take somebody out to eat or to take my wife out to dinner or to put gas in my truck, you know, the, the running around stuff. And so if there's, if there's two, three hundred bucks left in that and another pay period's coming and I got a little extra money and I see a really nice pair of boots, yeah, you know, pulling that out of that account's no big deal, is it? Because it's just money. 
pulling out a 403B, 401K. That's different, isn't it? Because that's supposed to go somewhere else. Here's my point. You understand about a 401K that it's not just money sitting in a bank that belongs to you. You understand your whole future is bound up with that, isn't it? And so you better be careful how you spend it. Are you going to do something reckless, take early withdrawal to take a vacation, borrow against it because you got sloppy with credit cards? When you treat things that are fully vested as no more than a monetary transaction, it usually ends up messing up your future, doesn't it? The same thing is true with your relationships. And that's what John is telling us here. The reality is if you're, if you're part of a church family, that means our eternal fortunes are tied to each other. Your spiritual well-being is bound up with others. And in that reality, a lot of people treat their church relationship cheaply, transactionally. John is telling us you're fully invested. That's exactly what he means when he says you're in fellowship with each other. Now, some of you may not like that because you've got an independent streak and you like this whole me and Jesus thing, even though there's, there's nowhere you can find that in the scriptures, but you like that. Um, it's a mentality that kind of borders on the simple. Some of you are frightened by that because there's been some just bona fide hurt, like somebody really messed you over and they were supposedly a fellow believer. And, and you, or, or some of you, you were just in a bona fide toxic environment. Entire churches can go toxic. That can happen, and it just turns you inside out. We can neither understand nor obey John's words here unless we do so, admitting at the outset it's not easy, is it? So he's telling us this. He's also recognizing because he's, he's addressing people in this initial audience that he knows are threatened to be divided from each other. He knows it's not easy. He knows you've been hurt. He knows that this is difficult. And, and some, of, some of you, I love you, are not easy. We have, a, we have an acrostic for you on our staff. E-G-R, extra grace required. Every once in a while, we, say we don't gossip on the staff, but when we're trying to work through a problem or trying to help somebody, every once in a while, a member of our staff, this will slip out. Oh, yeah, they're, they're one of the E-G-Rs, yeah. And I know some of you are like, am I one of Wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> Wouldn't you? Yeah. We're not trying to insult you when we do that in that room. We're just, we're just trying to help. And, and sometimes it's by acknowledging, yeah, this, this might not be easy. This person might not be easy. But you know what? They're creating God's image and likeness. They're the object of the redemptive work of Christ. EGR, no EGR. We will give them the attention that we believe Jesus would. Right? That, that's what we do. Extra grace required. Here's what you need to know. Passages like this, number one, are never an excuse to stay in an environment that's toxic. Okay? So that, that's not, you will have toxic environment. Well, you just need to stay in here and, and, and be unified with us. No, that's not what, that's not what John's saying. Number two is, is though the, the other side of this coin. Even in healthy environments that have humans in them, you are going to get hurt. I've been here eight years, and I have been hurt by this church, sometimes deeply, by people in this church, by people who used to be part of this church. I'm still here. I'm still, well, you get paid. Yeah, I know all that. I, granted, right? Touche. I get it. I get it. But a little inside track here pull back curtain a little bit on pastors for you. 
The whole reason we have denominational meetings and conventions is so we can find other churches. See, y'all thought it was all about missions and voting on issues. And Pastor Chris will tell you, he'd been with me to the SBC and some of these other meetings. I've had the number of times, hasn't it, brother? Somebody walks up, how you doing? Oh, great, man. God's been good to me. I, yeah, Lord's been good. Lord's been good. But if you, boy, if you, if, you know, I'm, we're at about 200 now. If you find a church about 500, they might be interested. Here's my resume. Like, that, that stuff happens. Like, we're just as fleshly as the rest of y'all sometimes. Yeah, the issue is, is it, is it a transactional relationship or is it a vested relationship? Do I see that my, my future is bound up in this? Your relationships are like that. You're going to get hurt. Listen, if you're trying to avoid hurt, Lord, please don't get married. Don't ever, ever have children. And for that matter, don't develop any kind of meaningful relationship whatsoever, ever. This stuff's hard as nails sometimes. They've been, they're married couples. I'm not going to call them out in here, but they're married couples in here. They've been married longer than I've been alive, and today's my birthday. I'm getting old, people. All right, And, they, and they've been married a long, long time, and, and they'll tell you, yeah, it's hard. Sometimes it's still hard, but they do it. Why are we called to it here? Because the basis of our vested relationships with each other is God's own vested relationship with us, and he hadn't given up on us. Made, look at those words again, made manifest with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, Jesus prayed the following, recorded for us in John's Gospel, 17, verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Sinful separation from God, that was the root of all division. That gap was closed in Jesus' death and resurrection. And did you hear what Jesus just prayed for? That the same degree of unity that exists between the Father and the Son, and, and then we, we know the Spirit is there as well. He's talking about the same degree of unity between you and I that exists within the Godhead. All right? And here's the result, foundation number three. Our greatest joy is in God and each other. Verse four, and we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. John's going to speak about joy in, in all three of, of his short letters here. And it's a joy that starts in relationship with Jesus. It is not complete until it is realized within the whole body. That's how it gets realized. See, Jesus doesn't just unite people who would otherwise remain divided. That's not love. That's not vested relationship. That's not fellowship. That's what the culture calls tolerance. Okay? So many, I, so many of you over the last two, three years are like, hey, Pastor, would you, would you my, my company has got this new operations manual about how we're supposed to treat people in the workplace and all that stuff. Man, there's just some stuff in there that, that really bothers me. And, and if I sent you a copy of that, could you read the operations manual for my company and tell me if I've got anything, you know, if I'm missing something? Would you, Pastor, would you read the operations manual for my employer? No. No, I'm not doing that. I ain't got time for that. But I, I can tell you, uh, you just, I'm just, just spitballing here. Uh, there are probably three words somewhere in there that have really tripped your trigger. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. How'd you know? Yeah. Because what your company has done is they've realized 
that there's still some division, there's still some legitimate stuff that as a society we've never really dealt with. I spent some, a considerable amount of time in Germany. They've dealt with their sordid history a heck of a lot better than we have ours, I'll just tell you that. But because of that recognition, they're prescribing answers that where in some cases the cure might be worse than the disease. So I think you should assume your employer's well-meaning while understanding, yeah, there's probably some issues with this. Why is that? Because they talk about tolerance. That's why. Tolerance is just we don't murder each other. Well, that's not bad. That's better than actually murdering each other. But that's not what God's after between human beings. Tolerance is what I'm going to display day after tomorrow because I got to get on an airplane. And when I get to security and I see those rent-a-cops, I'm going to exercise tolerance, not because I love them, not because I appreciate what's happening to me, what's about to happen to me, but because I don't want to go to prison. That's why. You ever been there? I'm going to be nice, but only because Jesus is watching and I don't want to go to jail. That's where you're at. That's tolerance. God wants more for us than that. He provides a path for us defined by our mutual joy in it. I ain't going to be feeling no joy at Dulles Airport on Tuesday night. Tolerance, but no joy. He says, look around. I, I want unity. I want you to practice the one another's because the joy that began in your relationship with Jesus, it gets completed in your relationship with each other as all of you share in your common identity in Jesus together. Will it be easy? No. But don't you think John knew that? Don't you think any man in his 80s knows that when he tells you this is what you need to do, that he knows it's going to be hard because he's been through it as well? Furthermore, don't you know that the Lord he served and whose hands he touched and whose shoulders he embraced and whose eyes he looked into, that he says, I've seen him, I was there. Don't, don't you think Jesus knew that too? When he prayed that high priestly prayer in John 17, knowing. Jesus prayed, Father, may they be, just as I and you and you and me, may they be one. Don't you know he prayed? And as he prayed, he saw a future that included a sinful schism between Paul and Barnabas and John Mark. He prayed, seeing clearly the racism of Peter. He prayed knowing that some two, three decades out there would be the, an impress, a, oppressive insistence of legalistic Judaizers at Galatia. He prayed knowing some of the vitriol that would spill out of the Jerusalem council. He prayed looking into the future all the way to this moment, January 21st, 2024, and, and seeing every bit of meddling and sideways energy of the, of the church caused by every heretic and troublemaker over the last 2,000 years. He saw the division between you and somebody else maybe in this fellowship that's going on right now, maybe even that I don't know about. He saw millions of decisions to pout, to leave, to throw bombs on your way out all over nothing really. And then on top of that, he saw the bona fide hurt and abuse that some people have suffered and the fear that accompanies all of that that now tells you don't ever trust again and he prayed anyway and here's something we know about Jesus his prayers get answered maybe not today maybe not tomorrow but he's remember John 6 37 all that the father has given to me will come to me 
you serve a powerful Savior if you follow Jesus. It's okay to trust again. It's okay to take that step. And, and, and that prayer will be, I don't know when, I got no knowledge of that, but it will be fully answered. And until it is, John's call for us here is to seek to embody that answer. I told you this was timely. A world that is literally on the verge of tearing itself apart, one bad bottle of tequila away from World War III. That's where we're at right now. What are you going to do? Are you going to be able to solve that? Probably not. But I'll tell you what we can do. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we can embody a new community right here. That's what John's calling us to. That's what he's calling us to. It, it will take your whole life. And, and sometimes those efforts are going to be excruciating. Kind of like crucifixion. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. And, and not just because of your love for that one person. Because there are going to be times you're not going to love them. Even though you're supposed to. You, not. you do it because of your belief that Jesus is worth it. And, and for some of you, even that divide remains. Because maybe you've never confessed your sin. Never really placed your faith in him. Let me take you back to the beginning as I conclude. This God-man entered time and space. He took your sin. He rose from the dead all so that at this very moment you could receive eternal life. Come to him today. And if you already know him, stay with each other for the glory of God. Let's build a new community together. Father in heaven, I thank you for the, the opportunity that this ancient word communicates to us. And I thank you that it's grounded in something real. It's not wishful thinking. It's not conspiratorial thinking. It's not partisan thinking. It is, it is objective truth grounded in history. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. John says here as an octogenarian, I saw him with my own eyes. I heard his voice with my own ears. I touched him. I was there. He is real. He is flesh. And so, Father, may we reunite ourselves to him as we begin a new year together and may that form a bond even within brothers and sisters here that we never thought possible and i pray these things in jesus name amen hi everybody pastor joel here and i am so glad you stopped by i pray this podcast helps you in your walk with god and if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.